Welcome to the Scientific Method Podcast. I'm Angela Chen. And I'm Mitch Fogelson. We're two PhD students at Carnegie Mellon University studying topics related to neuroscience, robotics, and AI. We are curious and impressed with how researchers come up with quality questions and clever experiments to discover the answers. Each week, we have conversations with professors and graduate students on their research process to gain insights that may improve our abilities in academic pursuits. If you're interested in research, grad school, or science in general, this is a perfect podcast for you. Our guest today is Sonia Roberts. Sonia is a PhD student in electrical and systems engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. For her dissertation, she developed a reactive controller for a legged robot running on sand that reduces the energetic cost of transport Sonia earned a bachelor's degree from Vassar College in cognitive science and worked as a research technician at the Genalia Farm Research Campus doing neuroscience and genetics research. She's interested in building robots that offload aspects of their cognition to either physical components or simple sensory loops that don't require complex internal representations. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Scientific Method podcast, Sonia. Thank you for having me. So now, if we can, in your own words, describe some of the current work that uh, you've been working on for your dissertation. Well, my current work is uh, trying to get this robot to run more efficiently on sand. So if you think about what it's like to run on sand, I don't know if you've ever gone for a beach run, but it's terrible. <laughs> the reason that it's terrible um, is that sand compresses without giving you any restoring forces. Think of it like a one-sided spring. Um, and it's actually worse than that because this one-sided spring has quadratic damping, whereas springs have linear damping. So you lose energy at a much higher rate than you would if you're walking even on a compressible spring. So robots have just as much trouble with this as we do. And I would like to find ways for the robots to be able to do this task without having to um, model the ground because in a natural environment, they won't have that option. So that's, that's why the reactive controllers, and that's why you know, not using complex representations of the environment because those may not be available or even possible to build. Yeah, absolutely. We're, you know, as humans, we're constantly capable of our, you know, navigating those terrains and uh, figuring out our, our own pace uh, better. And, and those are the capabilities that we want to um, embed into our robots as well, right? Uh, and sure. so uh, what, what are the, the research motivations that you've had for this work? Why, why are we looking at sand and, and why do we need robots to even be in these, um, you know, sandy environments? Yeah, so I'll start with the second first. Um, it's nice to have robots running around in sandy environments because robots can help field scientists perform their research. So the robot that I'm working with in particular is uh, the Ghost Minotaur robot. So it has direct drive legs, that's legs with no gearboxes. And because these legs are very back drivable or transparent in the parlance of Ghost, um, if you push on the leg, then the motors see that, they see uh, the offset and you can use that to measure the force with which you know the leg has been pushed. Um, so you can actually use them as force sensors which means that if this robot is running around in the desert, it can scrape or poke its feet on the ground and give you real-time uh, measurements of force required in order to either scrape or poke into that soil, which can tell you about ground erodibility. 
So we've been collaborating with various desert scientists and uh, geoscientists for years um, at this point, figuring out ways that this robot could be used either to help build larger data sets than they already have available um, or to like offload some of what they're trying to do onto the robot. Um, and if you think about you know, future applications for this kind of thing, what I've basically just described is extraplanetary research on planet Earth with humans involved. So if you start peeling away some of those layers, then you could imagine having a little robot like this running around on a desert planet. I don't know, you know we, we might have a couple of those flying around waiting to be explored um, with even a population of robots already present on them. Um, so increasing the amount of autonomy slowly for this kind of task over time could lead to that kind of, um, that kind of application in the future. Um, as for why I, as a locomotion person, am interested in sand, <laughs> when I started this project, I would have told you that it's um, sand is the uh, easiest to model unmodelable substrate. And at this point, I don't really think that the word easy should be applied anywhere near sand. <laughs> it is <laughs> it's a very difficult substrate. <laughs> don't let it fool you. <laughs> so I had hoped <laughs> that one could build realistic models. Um, in simulation and then run a robot on that and then transfer that directly to the real world. Um, it's not quite as simple as that. The force models exist and will give you a qualitative answer, um, but getting them to match up to simulation requires you know, further experimentation for every individual setup that you have. So mm -hmm. it's actually, it's more challenging than it seems to be. Uh, those, those granular media physicists, um, God bless them. I would be lost <laughs> without them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Senia, where do you look for research inspirations? Um, I read a lot. <laughs> and I watch a lot of talks. Um, and when I say I read a lot and I watch a lot of talks, I don't mean engineering talks or engineering papers. Um, I, I keep up either collaborations or just friendships with people in a lot of different kinds of fields. Um, I read a lot of different um, articles. I watch a lot of different uh, kinds of research that's coming out. Um, but the, the deepest inspiration for me is this idea about not wanting to have complex representations in the robot and seeing what you can do anyway, seeing what you can get away with without having that kind of thing. And that goes all the way back to my undergraduate degree in cognitive science, which is the first place that I encountered that, that kind of idea that we didn't actually, you know, if you think about catching a ball, somebody's throwing a ball at your face, what do you do to catch the ball? Um, the way that engineers might intuitively think that you catch that ball is by calculating the trajectory of the ball and then trying to place yourself at the end of that trajectory. That's not what people do. <laughs> uh, what, what people do is they look at the ball and they look at the height between the ball and the horizon, and then they try to move forward or back until they reach a point where the ball is at a constant height, which means it is flying directly towards your face. Mm. Um, and th this is a much simpler and easier way to do this. And it just happens to be apparently what people do. Um, so it, examples like that started to get me really excited about this idea of, of um, uh, interesting behaviors that don't require complex internal uh, representations of them. Um, and I started thinking about how that could apply to locomotion science and that's, uh, it, I started thinking about how that could apply to locomotion science because I started working with somebody who studies locomotion, <laughs> though swimming locomotion, not legged locomotion. 
Um, and I, I started thinking about how some of these uh, some of these simple behaviors could actually be physically implemented in the body of an agent, whether it's an animal or a robot. Um, and that's that's what actually got me here was starting to think about how things could be um, physically implemented in the body of a robot and then looking at what labs were doing things like that. Dr. Kodacek's lab was doing the Rex robot, which physically implements aspects of its control in its springy C-shaped legs. And thus my PhD was born. That's an amazing story. And uh, yeah, really interesting about the, you know, our, our, you know looking internally at the, the human um, behaviors for answering some of those questions. So yeah, I guess uh, this leads me to my next question, Sonia. Like, how do you think about the quality of a question? Uh, you decided to, you were inspired by these um, locomotions and, and kind of embodied uh, intelligence. And so, you know, you could have done you know, any, any sort of um, area related to, to those uh, two things as you were talking about, like catching a ball. Uh, so how did you kind of narrow down the, the, the question space into a particular scope that you thought was both interesting and, uh, you know, worthwhile or good to some degree? How do you address, you know, go through that process? Yeah, so I think how one goes through that process depends a lot on what type of contribution you're trying to make. Um, if you're doing something scientific. So if you're doing something that has the word science after it, like biological science or engineering science or whatever you want to, whatever kind of science, um, then you're looking for information. So you're looking for a question that is that has an interesting answer, regardless of what that answer is. Um, a lot of the time, engineers are not looking for information. They're looking either to build a model or to test a model um, or to, to build something that works better than the things that worked before. So I would say in, in this case, um, with this project, I was trying to carve off a small enough problem that would be tractable to, to find some better way of doing things um, that still was true to the way that I'm interested in answering these questions. So without having to build this complex internal model. Um, but I wasn't looking for a question like I would, you know, if I were approaching this from a cognitive science standpoint or from a biology standpoint. I was approaching it more from what I would consider an engineering standpoint, where I was trying to find a way to build something that would perform, you know, at least benchmark 20% better or something like that than the existing, um, the existing methods. So what I did is just keep paring down until I could find, keep paring down and simplifying until I could find something that I could explain um, and improve the performance on. So I started with a very complex robot with a lot of degrees of freedom. I pared down to a much simpler robot and then took only one of its legs. <laughs> <laughs> so now I have one leg <laughs> jumping vertically <laughs> in some sand. Uh, and then I, I looked at the sand to see how I, could, um, how I could use the information that the granular media physicists derived about the force functions to tell me how the energy that the robot is you know, pushing into the ground as it moves around, um, how I could reduce the amount of energy that actually gets transferred to the ground while the robot's moving. Mm -hmm. And what are the pressing questions that you think need to be addressed in your field for the next year? And how do you think about addressing them? 
Yeah, so what what is my field? <laughs> is a very important question for that. Um uh, if my field is robotics, then I think the most pressing question is actually not something that I'm working on directly. I think it's algorithmic accountability. Um if we're thinking about and that's that's because uh now there's a lot of robots starting to be deployed in the real physical world interacting with people and not necessarily the people that they would have been trained um to recognize or to interact with or anything like that um if we're speaking more specifically about locomotion um and how legged robots might locomote i i would really like to see legged locomotion researchers agree on some kind of um hierarchy of control I've noticed that people tend to um they tend to all use approximately similar <laughs> I I'm kind of hedging here because everyone's going to say no oh, we do things that are extremely different <laughs> and that's true um but there's this idea that there are some higher time scale and lower time scale controllers that need to interact in coordinated ways that seems to be fairly universal but i don't know if you guys were taught explicitly how to determine when you need what kind of controller but i certainly wasn't um it's something that seems to be mostly intuition um and kind of picked up by working with physical robots like if you talk to um if you talk to people who work with physical robots they tend to have developed this kind of hierarchy kind of that they will use but that they don't usually explicitly explain Um so I I would really like to see something like that come out that talks about how the different parts of a legged robot's control actually interact. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um I wanted to go back a little bit to the algorithmic uh uh point that you made as well where you said in 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 the larger scheme of like uh this sort of accountability for algorithms. What do you mean by that and in, in what sorts of situations do algorithms need to be accountable or is it the designers that need to be held accountable for their algorithms so that is a point of debate that is above my pay grade and we need to talk to the sociologists and the policy scientists and those kinds of folks to to get the real answer for that um uh, the outcome that i would like is that we end up with algorithms used in the real world that don't have biased outcomes for different groups of people um what the right method is to get there It's not something that we really learn as engineers and that's that's why I think it's really important to talk to the humanists who do study this kind of thing. <laughs> you can tell us a little bit more about um what tends to work, what what ways of holding people, algorithms, companies, whatever, um are likely to actually have the desired outcome. Um my guess is that we need more regulation. Um that's a complete guess. and i i would really like to get humanists involved in answering that more fully yeah that uh yeah definitely a good point um so earlier you you kind of mentioned that um engineers aren't kind of going about the the same sort of hypotheses and scientific method process that maybe a, a biologist or someone who's a more classical scientist but i guess i would argue with you a little bit um in the sense that you are designing a uh, a leg that can uh, act more efficiently in granular media uh, to go about answering that question you go through the same uh, maybe sub scientific method where 
you have a hypothesis of a foot design uh, where you are trying to gather information. The end objective might not be the information, but I do think that uh, your intermediary steps definitely hold a lot of the same sort of qualities that um, the other scientists go through. What do you think about uh, what do you think Yeah, about um, I, I think that I definitely do experiments um, comparing different conditions. That is absolutely the case. Um, but if you read engineering papers, I, I want everyone listening to this podcast to do a fun homework exercise, <laughs> which is the next engineering paper that you read, look and see if there are error bars on any of the plots. Mm. There often aren't. It, it's often the case that engineers will show um, one trial in one condition and one trial in another condition and say, look, they're different. And that to me is just like, okay, you, you tested your model and you got, you know, you got a data point here and a data point there and they're very far apart. Great. Or, you know, there will just be a demonstration that it works. Um, so like, oh, great. You built a robot that is able to run on concrete and on stairs and on sand, for example. Cool. And you can, you know, flip between different controllers that let you do these things. And there's a little video demonstrating that you can do that. Um, and, and that's all great. Uh, but you, you didn't really need the scientific method to tell you that those conditions are different. Mm. They're far enough apart. Um, the scientist in me cries out and says, you need to take more data because I don't know what the variance on this is. Like, I don't know how many experiments you ran. Um, but when I put my engineer hat on, I go, okay, they were looking for a large enough difference that they wouldn't need to do statistics, basically. Um, mm. And that that seems to be what the goal in engineering is. You, you want a large enough difference between your conditions that you don't actually need to use statistics or, or any of the other tools that, that I would use as a scientist to try to just ask questions of the universe. It's mm, really interesting point. And when you're, when you're investigating those, um, I guess, intermediary like ideas and these pursuits, these engineering pursuits, like, how do you address what happens when, when your kind of initial idea or hypothesis is wrong and the experiment doesn't work out, that you've been working on finding a lower energy uh, you know, gait or behavior for this robotic leg, but in the end, you've actually found that uh, the complications or the approach that you took ends up making it more energetic. Uh, how do you kind of address those emotions and then use that information to, um, improve or advance your, your ideas about the work? Well, as for how to address the emotions, the, the emotions, um, the way to address those emotions, I think, is just to have um, a good sense of my identity that is not tied to my work. <laughs> like, just, just because the thing that I tried didn't work doesn't mean that it wasn't a good idea given the information that I had at the time, or that I am not smart for having thought of it, or that, you know, I'm going to fail out of my PhD or any of these like anxiety spirals that people can get, can get stuck on. Um, as for what you do next, <laughs> I think the best thing to do next is to dig into your data and see what, what happened here. Is there um, some interesting explanation that I can pull out of this? And if there isn't, if, there, if there's no obvious direction that your data tells you to go, um, then the next thing to do is to find somebody who's a more senior expert in your field. This might be your advisor. It might be somebody else. And go through 
what you did with them um, and ask them what they think could have contributed to your not getting the results that you think you're getting or that you think you should get. So for me, the way that this has played out wasn't um, getting an opposite result. I think an opposite result might might be interesting because <laughs> you're getting a, a difference between conditions. Um, but I was getting no result. I was getting no difference mm. between conditions where I expected that I should get a difference. Um, or my, my difference was very small. It was statistically significant, but not different enough that engineers would care, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So what, what I did was I found um, a senior expert a professor who was already an expert in this kind of thing, who wasn't my advisor, who I'd already tapped out for this kind of advice. Um, and I asked, you know, what, what about my experimental design do you think is making it the case that I don't see what this difference is? Um, and I got, a, I got a lot of really good advice. And one of the things was, you know, the task isn't too difficult for the robot. This task needs to be almost so difficult that the robot can't do it. Mm. Only then are you gonna be able to really make a difference. Um, because any if, if the robot's almost able to do a task and it can't, and you can get it over that hump, uh, that's a an obvious difference that will be obvious to engineers, scientists, everybody. Um, if if the robot can do a task and you're helping it do it better, that's not necessarily going to make a large difference. Even if it's you know a statistically significant difference, nobody's necessarily going to care enough to implement it on their robot. Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I think that's the most so, transferable. Yeah, <laughs> piece what of was the what was the you know if you don't mind um, uh, giving us some of the conditions, um, what was the 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 difficulty that you encountered with the sand? Is there a particular type of sand? Is it the grain of the sand? Is it you know when the sand is wet? What is the conditions that you found were were so hard that uh, no robot can currently achieve them? <laughs> I switched robots. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had been using Rex, um, and the Rex robot is extremely good at everything that it does. <laughs> it's even pretty good at most of the stuff that it doesn't usually do. Uh, so getting getting Rex to be a little bit better at something um, mm -hmm. is very attractive because Rex is so good at all the other stuff. You'd like it to be good at even more stuff. Yeah, so uh, but it, it's hard to get it dramatic. Quick. So yep. maybe maybe the listeners don't know what Rex is. Rex is a hexapodal robot that was developed or in, in part with uh, your your um, advisor Dan Kodacek, uh, and so it has you know six legs, and they are C-shaped and and springy as as you had mentioned earlier, and they kind of walk alternately. And there's a lot of great um, videos of this robot that you know makes it look like a cockroach and uh, essentially makes the task a lot easier for for locomotion. And so what you're saying is that Rex is almost too good at uh, at being able to explore all, all sorts of different environments. And, and what is the change that, you know, modern robots have had, um, you know, past Rex because Rex is, you know, much older that makes it much more difficult for the, the, the sand traversal. Is it the, the footprint size or just the, the number of legs or? Um, it, you're asking what is it about Rex that makes it so able to walk around on sand? Well, more of the opposite. What is what is it about these, you know, modern robots? You would have thought that we would have had increased performance, um, you know, as as we continue to iterate. Rex has has been around since the like in the nineties or maybe even earlier. So what? 90s. Why are why are the two thousands robots, uh, you know, making it more difficult for these uh, in particular environments? Yeah. So it depends on the robot. I'm sure there are plenty of robots that 
you know, you, you could walk around in the desert nowadays that would do okay. Um, but not robots that can use their little feet as sensors like Minotaur could. Mm. So the direct drive aspect of the robot is what makes it particularly difficult for it to walk around on sand. Mm. Yeah, the thing about gearboxes is that there's a reason we use them. <laughs> 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 they, they really yeah. help the robot a lot. <laughs> so when you take those away, you have to come up with other adaptive mechanisms to get you back the functionality. Um, but in some cases, it's worth it. And one of those cases, I think, is if you want the robot to be able to walk around while collecting a data set for you. Because um, o- otherwise, y- you have to do a lot of extra instrumentation. So either, either your choice is to instrument a robot that just does locomotion, um, or to add uh, simple controllers to a robot that can do the locomotion and the sensing you know, as part of the same package. Either choice is fine. Sonia, can you share a fun experience about your robots? <laughs> about my robots? Um, you asked me this ahead of time, and then I forgot what I was going to say, <laughs> which is very helpful. <laughs> well, if you're asking it that vaguely, um, just a fun experience with my robots, um, then probably, probably the most fun just experience with my robots is taking them on field trips. Um, Towards the earlier part of my PhD career, um, I took Rex, which is this little C-shaped robot with the the six C-shaped legs that are kind of springy, as Mitch mentioned. Um, We took that to a, a recycling center and walked it around on different types of rubble to see what kinds of rubble it would have trouble with and whether whether we could get into situations that it would really just fall over and not be able to get back up from. Um, the robot is very good. Uh, the only issues that it really couldn't surmount were like more than 45 degree inclines where the, the ground was like falling underneath it as it was trying to climb. Um, it also got stuck once when there was like a, a piece of rubble that was like pointed towards its face. So it was trying to move forward and its little legs were going on either side of this piece of rubble that was like pinning it in place. Um, but yeah, we, we couldn't break the robot. We broke an acrylic plate on top of the robot. The robot itself was like, I'm fine. What, what, what are we doing next? <laughs> Where do you want to go, guys? <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. Sonia, thank you so much for sharing your experience and perspectives of your research. Yeah, thank you for having me on. What did you think of the interview with Sonia today? Well, I thought the I thought the interview was really great. I finally got a very good overview of legged robots. I didn't know about them before. And uh, I thought what was uh, specifically intriguing to me was when she mentioned that uh, the engineering uh, data analysis method or the result uh, presentation method uh, doesn't contain an error bar. Is that, um, why is that why is that interesting to you? What about your 
coming from a statistics background, I, uh, of course, I'm biased uh, towards uh, sampling and looking at um, looking at repetitions of experiments um, before drawing a conclusion. So, of course, I'm biased um, based on my background. Um, but I also, that you come from an engineering background, I'd like to hear more about what you've seen. Yeah, I, I do think that Sonia makes a, a good point that a lot of times we look, you know, these papers will present um, these, you know, amazing engineering feats and, and they'll say, you know, 96% uh, effective. And, you know, we kind of just assume that that's all the time. It'll be 96% all the time, but we don't, we don't really know, uh, you know, how well. And, and that is definitely something that the, um, I think the community can definitely uh, improve on. Uh, but I think engineers spend so much time and effort just trying to get it to work once that they're so excited to, to share what they have uh, working. And, and there's, you know, so much uh, little engineering magic to get it to the point of, you know, even being able to work on a real machine that um, sometimes the, the data definitely can may be misleading. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I thought that she mentioned that I, I um, liked a lot and I thought was really interesting was how different fields might have uh, different interesting questions and then how she decides to approach questions where, you know, there's a idea that she thinks is uh, particularly um, uh, novel or interesting and, you know, ch chiseling away at it until she has essentially the most uh, simple uh, version of that particular problem, which will still address the, the original question. And I think that this, you know, really important. We always, you know, we've got such high aspirations as um, engineers and scientists. We want to show, you know, artificial general intelligence or, you know, um, these dexterous motions of robots. And, you know, what, what are the, the steps that we actually get there and how do we you know, make that incremental progress because as, you know, we continue to um, develop these new systems, we're, we're building on top of uh, previous work as well. And we don't need to uh, take too big of steps. Uh, you know, we need to find the right, right size step to take that um, can be achieved and, uh, you know, still addresses and steps in the right direction, I think, so. I think that point is very interesting the I don't remember who said this. Um, so I remember there was a quote about if you can't simplify a problem, you don't understand. In order to address complex problems, you got to start simple. And so I like that she mentioned that she would um, try to figure out like the small steps, um, make it tractable um, um, to solve a big mission. Yeah, that word tractable, it's the, the engineers and scientists, uh, <laughs> you know, favorite vocabulary word for saying uh, we can do it. Uh, so it's definitely one I've, I've uh, added into my vocabulary a lot in, in my recent conversations. Well, thank you so much, Angela, for uh, hosting this episode of the Scientific Method podcast with me. I'm uh, excited to release this episode and, and see, you know, uh, what other people learn about uh, Sonia Roberts and uh, you know, the answers that she gave to her questions. That's it for this week's episode of the Scientific Method Podcast. We hope you learned something from this week's guest. 
If you have a researcher in mind you'd like us to interview, we would love to hear from you. Please leave us a comment below. I'm Angela Chen. And I'm Mitch Fogelson. Thanks for listening. See you next time.